Well, um, good evening. Um, I think... Um, I think most people may know who I am, but I don't want to presume. Uh, so my name is Vicky, and I'm on the star team uh, here at HTC. And uh, welcome to the third session in our theology track. And this evening, um, as Tim was saying, we're going to be thinking about the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit. And this area of theology is called pneumatology. Pneuma, meaning spirit, and logos, meaning speech. Literally, how do we speak of the Spirit. How does what we say, our words, our logos, reflect what we believe? And how does what we believe impact our lives? And specifically on this topic, we're going to be thinking about how we can give equal emphasis to both understanding and experience. We need to be systematic. We need to be robust in our thinking about the Spirit. And we're going to do that. We're going to be thinking about our understanding of His eternal being. We're going to think about the relationships in the Trinity, the Spirit in historical development. But we also need to desire experience. Both are important and both are vital. The theologian Alistair Heron called the Holy Spirit the most elusive and difficult of all themes in Christian theology. So I was really chuffed when I got asked to do this one this evening. Um, in the fourth century, uh, one of the church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, called the spirit Theo Agripatos, the God who nobody writes about. One of the most famous theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, um, said that he had a dream. He had a dream that someday someone might develop a theology of the Holy Spirit, which now I, Carl, can only envisage from afar as Moses once looked on the promised land. Barth was writing in the 1960s. And he was saying that he longed for a day when there might be a fully realized theology of the Holy Spirit. Now, much has been written on the cross, the resurrection, the historical person of Jesus, scripture and revelation. But Barth is referencing the idea that the Spirit is the Cinderella of theology. Fortunately, in the years since the 1960s. Actually, there has been an emergence of writing and thinking on the Holy Spirit. And it would be remiss of me, um, just at the very start of this talk, not to mention two theologians and two books that have shaped my thinking particularly on this, and which I would heartily recommend to you as further reading. Some of you may already have read these people, uh, but they're great, and we're not going to cover everything tonight. So the, the two books, it's God Inside Out, which is Simon Ponsonby, uh, which is a brilliant systematic approach to understanding the Spirit, and The Prodigal Spirit, The Trinity, the Church, and the Future of the World by now Bishop Graham Tomlin. I don't think he was a bishop when he wrote it, but he's now a bishop. Um, because there has been, when we think about the Spirit in historical development, there has been a frustration in articulating who the Spirit is. How do we speak? What are our logos, our words, when we think about the Spirit? And that is seen right back, if we trace back, to the church's early creeds. And the creeds are that place where the church wrestles with what she believes practically developing theology on the ground, formulating belief. And when the church was wrestling with her beliefs back in the 4th century, when the council met in the 4th century in Nicaea, 
they were trying to wrestle with what did it mean to speak of following a Trinitarian God. And when it came to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the first time around that the Council of Nicaea met, all they could manage to come up with was we believe in the Holy Spirit, full stop. We believe in the Holy Spirit. To start with, all that could be spoken of the Spirit was acknowledgement, existence. Now, later, that part of the creed was developed, and we have what we have now. Um, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. So they got there in the end. Um, but even that, unfortunately, started a little bit of controversy um, that is still ongoing today. It's, it, caused, it caused a disagreement between the church in the West um, and the church in the East. Now, that's a conversation for another time. But it emphasizes, again, that difficulty in articulation. And I think... It's because the history of the church's understanding of the Spirit is so intrinsically linked with the history of the church's understanding of the Trinity. The key Trinitarian question regarding the Spirit is not whether he is God, but whether he is a distinct person. Is the Spirit more than an expression of God in action or God among us? Is the Spirit more than an expression of God in action or God among us? Because broadly speaking, when we look now, when we look through history, when the church has faltered in her understanding relating to the Spirit, it's because one of two errors have been held. The first one is the Spirit is granted personality, but denied divinity. The second is the Spirit is granted divinity, but denied personality. So let's look at the first one. The Spirit is granted personality, but denied divinity. Now, this is when we bestow the Spirit with personhood, an agent of God active amongst us. But in the way we speak of the Spirit, we relate to him as a created being, subordinate to God, less than the Father, less than the Son. That's the first error. The second error, the Spirit is granted divinity, but denied personality. This is when we view the Spirit as a force, a divine action, the action of God among us, but not a distinct person of the Trinity. So I think to develop a robust theology of the Spirit, we have to start in that place, and we have to start thinking about the Holy Spirit's divinity and the Holy Spirit's personality, so as not to fall into those two errors. But before we do that, um, turn to the person next to you. Say hello, if you haven't done already. What struck you so far, and have you ever fallen into one of those two errors? You have a minute. Off you go. Okay, let's come back together. We're going to come back together. So we're going to start... Um, we're going to start by thinking about the Holy Spirit's divinity, the Holy Spirit as God. And I thought it might be helpful to think about this under three headings, attributes, actions, and associations. Attributes, actions, and associations. Divine attributes, divine actions, and divine associations. And now a disclaimer to start with, um, this is not an exhaustive 
list because you'd all like to get home, I'm sure. Um, But this is a starting point, an overview. So let's think about the divine attributes of the Spirit. The first one is the Spirit is eternal. The Spirit is eternal. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 verse 14 says, Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. The Greek word eternal means without beginning or end. And therefore, to describe the Spirit as eternal is to describe the Spirit as divine, as God. The Spirit is eternal. The Spirit is everywhere. The theological type word for that is omnipresent. The Spirit is omnipresent. The Spirit is everywhere. In Psalm 139, the writer of the Psalm says, Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? The Spirit is the presence of God who is everywhere. Omnipresent. The Spirit knows everything that God knows. The Spirit is eternal, He is everywhere, and He knows everything that God knows. He is omniscient. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 to 12, Paul states that the Spirit reveals to us the wisdom of God. And Paul uses this argument that a person's own spirit knows a person's own thoughts. And similarly, only God's Spirit knows God's thoughts. The Spirit of God, who alone knows God, reveals the thoughts of God to us. The Spirit is eternal. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. Those are his divine attributes. He is also active. The Spirit is God present among us. Um, We'll know in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, in chapter 26, the Lord promises Israel that he will be their God who will walk with them and make his dwelling among them. Now, in the Old Testament, we know that that was fulfilled through the tabernacle, the temple. In the New Testament, Paul says that is fulfilled through the church. And why is it fulfilled through the church? Because the church is the temple where God's indwelling spirit is. The Spirit of God is present among us. And the Spirit is a life giver. Um, I love the Hebrew word um, for the Spirit in the Old Testament for breath. It's ruach. You have to get a bit of phlegm up to make it sound really good. Choak. In Genesis 2, we see that brilliant picture of God creating the world by bringing life with his own breath. And in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, there is this understanding that all of life is brought forth and all of life is sustained by the breath of God. And that continues into the New Testament. The Spirit is life, Romans 8 verse 2. The Spirit gives life, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6. And the Spirit raises us to new life, Romans 8 verse 11. The Spirit is God present among us. And the Spirit is one who brings life. And then along with those divine attributes and those divine actions... There are the Holy Spirit's divine associations. Whenever we see baptism and blessing in the New Testament, we see baptism and blessing in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is associated with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. It's our mandate. Baptizing them, Jesus says, in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. And Simon Ponsomy points out that baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit reflects a Hebrew idea. And this Hebrew idea is the idea of lesem. And lesem means to be fundamentally determined by something. Fundamentally determined by something. So to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit means that as a Christian disciple, we are fundamentally determined by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As Karl Barth said, the Holy Spirit is no less and no other than God himself. Distinct from him, whom Jesus calls Father, distinct from Jesus himself, yet no less than the Father, and no less than Jesus, God himself, God altogether. We must recognize the Spirit's divinity, and we must be able to articulate robustly the Spirit as person, the Holy Spirit's personality. Now, the first thing to say here is that um, there are many definitions of that word person. If you asked an ethicist, a scientist, a theologian, a philosopher, a psychologist, an economist, if you asked them to define the word person, I would imagine they'd come up with a few different types of definitions. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit's personhood, personality, um, what do we mean? Well, I think a good starting place is to talk about the qualities of personhood exhibited by the Spirit. At a basic level, we know that the Spirit comforts, teaches, speaks. But the Spirit also determines the church's course of direction. The early church was led by someone, not something. Um, the early church was not led by an abstract force. And sometimes when we talk about Pentecost, we can fall into the error of kind of using language that might suggest that. The early church was led by the person of the Spirit. The Spirit helps and prays for the church in her weakness. What a comfort is that? The, the Spirit can be grieved and or insulted. And again, looking and listing um, the qualities of personhood reminds us that the Spirit is not an impersonal force or an energy. The Spirit is person and is divine. And I said um, at the start that it's really important that we are systematic in our thinking about the Spirit ontologically, that we understand who the Spirit is, but it's also really important that we understand and think robustly about the ministry of the Spirit. So as we've thought about the Holy Spirit's personality and as we've thought about the Holy Spirit's divinity, we're going to move on now to think about the ministry of the Spirit and particularly to think about three areas. I want us to think about how the Spirit forms our identity, how this works out corporately in terms of the gifts of the Spirit, and how the church is equipped and sent out by the Spirit. Now, again, that is not exhaustive. We could think about the Spirit in creation. We could think about the Spirit and sanctification. Again, I'm sure everybody wants to go home. So instead, we're going to start by thinking about the Spirit and identity. Now, identity, it's a really key topic for us. You know, those fundamental questions, who am I? Why am I here? Where do I come from? Identity is linked to our purpose, our calling, and our vocation. And understanding the Christian doctrine of the Holy Spirit 
is actually, I think, key to answering some of these fundamental questions. So in Galatians 4, Paul writes, Paul writes, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us into the love between Father and Son. And it's this experience of being drawn into that love, the experience of being a child of God that is so fundamental to our identity as Christians. And I want to unpack this by looking at two particular passages. The first one is one of the great Trinitarian moments of the gospel, Jesus' baptism. In this event, as the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, he hears the voice of the Father pronouncing over him, you are my son, who I love. With you, I am well pleased. And these words reveal the true identity of Jesus. Jesus is the beloved son. Jesus stands in the love of the Father. And what's amazing in Romans 8 is that Paul then applies that to us. How does that work out for us? In Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The Holy Spirit draws us into the same relationship that the Son has with the Father, so much so that we find ourselves using the same language as Jesus did, that intimate Aramaic term, Abba, Father, Daddy. We become children, heirs. We stand in the same place in relation to the Father as Jesus does. So when we place those two passages next to each other, Jesus' baptism and Romans 8, we begin to see clearly the work of the Spirit in relationship to the Father and the Son. The knowledge of the love of God for his Son becomes ours through the Holy Spirit. Because we are in Christ through the Holy Spirit, we can experience the same love of the Father as Jesus himself knows. We talk about the idea that God is love, but I think it's as we dig deeper into Trinitarian theology and the role of the Spirit, we actually really can start to understand the shape and the focus of that love. That love isn't a positive energy. It's not a feel-good factor. Instead, it helps us answer this question, who are you? Who are you? Theologically, as a Christian with full Trinitarian confidence, you can answer, because the Spirit has united me with Christ, I am a beloved child of the Father, knowing the same love from the Father that Jesus knew. I think that's pretty life-changing. I think if we can understand who we are through the work of the Spirit, if we can understand that we stand in that place so that we can know the love the Father has for the Son, and that is the same love for us, that is life-changing. That is life-changing. Um, but as Christians, of course, we don't just understand identity as an individual thing. 
we understand identity corporately. We are co-joined into one body, the church. And we're reminded of this every time we respond as the family of God in a baptism service. It's my favorite part of a baptism service. When we stand and we say, we welcome you into the fellowship of faith. We are children of the same heavenly father. We welcome you. At Pentecost, a transition happened. The people of God became the spirit-filled body of Christ, the fellowship of faith. And in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writes about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it makes us want to pause and remember again who we are. Who, Who are we? Who are we corporately as the church? We are the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Just take a moment, turn to the person next to you, ask them who they are, <laughs> um, both individually and corporately. Who are, who are we? Have a chat. Okay, we're going to come back together. I don't know um, what your response was there. Who are you? Who are we as the church? Um, I thought you might want to know what Jürgen Moltmann thought we were. So Moltmann um, is a theologian, and this is what he says. Um, in terms of our corporate identity as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He says the church is what it truly is and what it does in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The church is what it truly is and what it does in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk a little bit now about the Spirit who gives gifts. And I think it's just important to to keep that context uh, live as we talk about that. Um, Because in the New Testament, there are four main listings of gifts or ministries that are discussed by Paul. And they're always discussed with reference to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They're always discussed in reference um, to the church. And um, rather than going through the individual Bible passages, we put them in a table. There we go, for all you... uh, thought that one might, might be a bit easier to see. So there's, uh, there's four passages, Romans 12, um, 6 to 8, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 11, and then it moves on to 28 to 30, and Ephesians 4, 11. Um, and you'll see here the gifts and the ministries um, listed. And in Romans 12, verse 6, um, Paul writes, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And Paul speaks of gifts, charismaton, which are a manifestation of the Spirit. And the gifts that are listed up on the screen, the gifts that are listed in these passages are given specifically to the believer by the Spirit through Christ. Now, nowhere in Scripture is there any sense that these gifts are part of the natural order. They're not part of the natural order. They are supernatural. And what I mean when I say they're not part of the natural order They're not things that are latent in creation that God co-opts for use in his church. Rather, they are a specific dynamic gift that is given for equipping by the Spirit. They are supernatural. Um, And there are a total of 29 gifts or ministries. Um, Some are repeated in the different passages. So if you can take those out, um, there's about, there's 20. There's 20 distinct gifts and ministries. And prophecy or prophets is the only one mentioned in all four of those passages. 
Now, one thing I would say is that we don't have time to go through um, every single one of them and unpack them, but again, I'm not working on commission, but if you read um, Simon Ponsonby's chapter, he does do exactly that. He goes through each of the gifts. So if you want to know a little bit more, I'd highly recommend um, you read that. Um, many are fairly self-explanatory when we look at things like the gift of teaching. I think most of us would understand what that might be, or the gift of evangelism. But some, particularly the second column in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 11, some of those are a little bit more hotly contested, shall we say, a little bit more discussed in the history of the church. Um, and they, those in the second column broadly break down into two categories. There are the gifts of divine revelation, and there are the gifts of divine demonstration. So the gifts of divine revelation, that would be things like prophecy, or words of knowledge, or interpretation of tongues. And then the gifts of divine demonstration would be things like faith, and miracles, and healing. And scripture um, tells us that we should eagerly desire spiritual gifts to build up the church. And if we're to desire prophecy or healing or miracles or faith or the gift of teaching or the gift of evangelism, if we are given it by God, how are we to use it? How are we to steward it? How are we to respond to it? Um, my favorite book, as it may be a number of yours, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I've read it many times as a child, and I've read it many times as an adult as well. And in that story by C.S. Lewis, when the children are given their Christmas gifts, Aslan reminds them of this. He says, these are your presents, and they are tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near. Bear them well. Bear them well. I think that is very useful guidance um, for using spiritual gifts. They are tools, not toys. Um, so let's have a think about some of the guidance that we see in Scripture around the gifts that the Spirit gives. Let's think first about how the gifts are given, how they're given. Firstly, the gifts are given by the Spirit to each one for the good of all. So spiritual gifts are given to individuals, not to make me or you look good, but to build up the church. The only possible exception to that in terms of something that is um, for the obvious building up of the church, the only possible exception is tongues in 1 Corinthians 14.4. Um, it's, it's a good gift and it's given to individuals, but it's more a personal prayer language unless there is an interpretation given. So that is more of an individual gift. It, it's to be used in a pr you know, your prayer time, prayer language, unless you have a tongue given in a, in a service or in a, in a meeting. And in that situation, if an interpretation is given, then obviously that can be orderly for the building up of the church. So they're given by the Spirit to each one for the good of all. Gifts are give, given by and according to God's sovereign will. Now, we're urged to eagerly seek spiritual gifts but we also need to remember that we can't demand them. Um, they are distributed according to how God wants to distribute them. He is sovereign, and he will give them as he chooses. Um, we are given them by grace. God gives gifts because he is good. 
He is a good father, and he is gracious. And that is the same for spiritual gifts. We don't receive the gifts of the Spirit because we deserve them or because we believe our character is worthy of them. And I think this is one of the great heresies, in a sense, with spiritual gifts, that people think that they have to be a particular type of Christian. I'm not sure what type of Christian that actually is, um, to receive gifts of the Spirit. Let's remember, if we look um, back at the table, where some of those um, gifts come in in scripture they come in corinthians now if you know anything about the history and the reality of the corinthian church the corinthian church was deeply flawed in character deeply flawed in character yet operated in the gifts of the spirit the gifts tell us about god's character they always point to the giver they never point to themselves and they never point to us Yes, we are continually to be sanctified and to be growing in godly character, but God gives his gifts by grace, not because we deserve them. So that is um, how they are given. Um, What about our response to them? How should we respond um, to the gifts of the Spirit? Well, the first thing is that we're not to be ignorant, indifferent, or impudent very pleased I managed to get all of those with the same letter. Um, Writing to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes that he does not want them to be uninformed, ignorant about the gifts of the Spirit, but he wants them to eagerly desire them. He wants them to eagerly desire. So we're not to be ignorant, indifferent, or impudent. Um, We are to exercise gifts within the framework of love. This one is so important. Paul clearly instructs the Corinthian church that when they exercise spiritual gifts, it must be done in the context of grace. If it isn't, it will all go wrong. The gifts that flow, when spiritual gifts, the gifts that flow, they flow from the Father's gracious love and mercy. So spiritual gifts are evidence of God's love and mercy. Therefore, they must be a means to express the same. If they are evidence of God's grace and mercy, they must express God's grace and mercy. So if spiritual gifts are used to control people or they are used to exert power, there is a horrible irony in that because they are given to express the Father's love and mercy. So they must must express it. They must be used to express it. So they must be exercised within that framework, that framework of love. And um, really important, um, we should use Scripture as our safeguard and our guide. It is Scripture that tells us about the nature of spiritual gifts, the number of spiritual gifts, and the operation of spiritual gifts. So Scripture must always be a safeguard and a guide to our understanding and our exercising of them. If something isn't lining up with what Scripture speaks of in terms of the gifts, then we need to stop and we need to pause, and we need to ask. How they are given, and how we respond to them. Turn to the person next to you, just have a quick 30-second chat about that. Great, so the final thing that we're going to look at um, this evening, and we're giving gifts to build up the church, to build up each other, and to see God's kingdom advance. So the final section that we're going to look at is the spirit who sends, the spirit who sends. Uh, One of my favorite theologians is a guy called Leslie Newbigin. 
Um, and um, he says one of my favorite things. And he talks about, he has this um, theory that one of the biggest heresies in the Western church today is the notion of individual privilege, which is the idea that the gospel is for individuals for their privilege, i.e. the gospel is for me, it's for my flourishing, um, it's for my family, it's for my time, um, it's mine. It's mine. And actually, he said it has stopped the great missionary movement um, of the Western church because we think, that's great, I can have a private faith for me. And one of the things that Leslie Newbigin said, it, it showed a huge lack of understanding of the Spirit because the Spirit is a missionary Spirit. The Spirit sends, the Spirit goes, the Spirit moves out. And at Pentecost, we see the Spirit equipping the disciples with power. And Jesus says that this is what will happen. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth. And if you look at the progression in that text, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and then, after that, you will be my witnesses. So there's something about the receipt of the Spirit's power where there is anticipation that is then followed by action. The Spirit is sent out from the heart of the bond between the Father and the Son to draw creation back. So the Spirit goes out to bring creation back. God sends his son, the father and the son send the spirit, and the spirit sends the church. As Simon Ponsonby puts it, the spirit is God inside out. God sends out his spirit to draw in his people. And God doesn't expect us to serve or to speak for him without his help. In the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus sending out his disciples. Just look at that text again. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. We have a mandate as the church. We have a mandate as disciples. Go and make other disciples. We have a mandate and we have a means. The mandate is go. The means is by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Jesus accompanies us and is with us always. And we see that. We see that on the day of Pentecost. The disciples spilled out onto the streets. We see that beyond the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And we see that today to the uttermost ends of the earth. And our mandate is the same as it was then. Our mandate is the same because the Spirit is the same. The Spirit who sends. Now, I believe that good theology is theology that comforts because I think it brings understanding but I think good theology is also theology that challenges, that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable at times as well. So I would love to finish um, looking at this topic with a little bit of a challenge um, because I was reading something um, this week as I was preparing for this. Um, it's Simon Ponsonby again. Um, and um, it's really challenging. It's really challenging. I read it about 10 times. You know, when you read something and then you read it again and you read it again. Um, so I want to share it with you to challenge you as well, because that's what I think good theology does. So it's quite long, um, so settle in. Um, 
and it's talking about the spirit who sends. The church in history internalizes the working of the spirit of God who was given to externalize and evangelize. The one sent to send has all too often been trapped, accommodated in our preferential systems, disobeyed and grieved. The church has focused on her offices and offices, order and ordinations. But when it comes to mission, never has so much been left by so many to so few. We have failed, claiming we lack the funds, the faith, the supporters, the opportunities, the resources. But the lack has been the Spirit's power. Not that he lacks power, but we have failed to avail ourselves of what is readily available. I don't know about you, but I found that hugely challenging. As the church, we need a robust understanding of the Spirit because we need to avail ourselves of that power. We shouldn't take for granted the presence of the Spirit, but nor should we act as if the Spirit was just not necessary and that we can do it all absolutely brilliantly by ourselves. Vene Creator Spiritus is um, one of the classic prayers of the church. It's a prayer that acknowledges the divinity and the personality of the Spirit. And it's also a very, very old prayer that asks for and seeks and hungers after the power and the presence of the Spirit that is available to us, the church. So what I would love to do this evening is just to finish by us praying that prayer, well, me praying that prayer and you listening, but you can pray it along as well. Um, and I want to finish because, as I said at the start, I think it's really important that we have a, a systematic theology, a robust theology of the Spirit. But that it's not just understanding, that it's something that we desire and experience of as well, understanding and experience. So can I just encourage you to take your understanding this evening and just be open now to how the Spirit wants to come and speak and move and minister amongst us. Um, you can stay seating, but can I, you might want to open your, your hands just in a, in a kind of posture of, of openness. Um, and I'm going to pray for us now. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Creator blessed. And in our souls, take up thy rest. Come with thy grace and heavenly aid to fill the hearts which thou hast made. Come, Holy Ghost, our souls inspire and lighten with celestial fire. Thou, the anointing spirit, art, who dost thy sevenfold gifts impart. Holy Spirit, we ask you to bring to life what has been taught and shared this evening. 
Holy Spirit, we ask you to bring an intimate knowledge of the love of God in Christ to us and a new purpose to be and to act like Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to avail this, your church, with power. Amen.